So guess where in the world do they have the most number of languages? You mean by country or by continent? Uh, yes, yeah, by country or by area. Indonesia. <laughs> Which part of Indonesia? Can't be Java. Um, so I'll give you a hint. This, this part, this area has like over a thousand languages, hundreds and hundreds of, and hundreds of different languages. Well, that's not a clue. That's literally a <laughs> <your> question. Like, <laughs> that is a clue because it makes you think where in Indonesia can there exist hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of languages? Is it in Papua? Yes! <laughs> I was thinking about the tribes, but I was also thinking about like the, the history of the, the trades. So before I thought, It could be a somewhere in uh, around Sumatra, but because this episode is about Papua, so it's uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, yeah, that's that was the trivia that I wanted to make you guess. Um, Damn, that's a lot. Yeah, so the only reason it can exist in Papua is because that part of Indonesia is so incredibly diverse and rich and so little communities can live and have their own language and have that language survive in you know like little microcosms like parts you know um hmm. I'm not explaining it very well but the other day at a at a party here in New York I talked to a linguist Um, and it turns out he is, uh, like, his expertise is in um, languages of Indonesia and the Philippines. And so I found out about that. And then I did some more research. And so it's also weird because, like, when you call it by country or when you categorize it by country, the data shows that Papua New Guinea is number one with the mm. most number of different languages. Number two is Indonesia. So West Papua exists between, between those yeah. two top countries with the most languages. And um, yeah, it's always weird to, you know, when you say like, like I, I was saying like which part of Indonesia, but then it's like, is it part of Indonesia? I mean, under- I mean... And like formally under whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Well, in this episode, we talked to someone who has spent a lot of her research on West Papua, on how they view racial and ethnic identity over there. And someone who was entrusted with rare materials that was recorded in West Papua yeah. back I mean, in... it's almost like a treasure. It is a treasure. Yeah. You know? I mean, in terms of what what the thing actually contain of, you know. Yeah. The two of them made this film. It's called Expedition Content. And it premiered at Berlinale. And... Um, It's an experience. I wouldn't even say it's like I would say it's beyond a film. Like watching it was an experience on its own, even though I was watching it on my laptop. Um, 
I think it's a film. For me, it's a film because I feel like film is like memories, memories that some that I don't know. Sometimes I watch movies and think of them as the memories that I don't have. If mm. that makes sense. Hmm. I the the reason I say it's an experience is because like when I was watching this, I felt like I was in a roller coaster ride, um, or maybe not a roller coaster ride, but. You know when you go to like Universal Studios or Disneyland or like whatever those theme parks and like yeah. they have these rides where you go into this this pod and it's it's dark and there's all of these like sounds and then like I guess if it's a ride like the pod shakes and then you're transported into this like physical experience mm-hmm. and you come out of it physically different because you have experienced something so visceral and that's what I felt like watching the film even though it was should I spoil it <laughs> it was yeah, I mean, it it's was okay I guess. it was all a black screen um but even though even though it was like mostly a black screen it felt so much more emotional and visceral hmm than you know seeing a bunch of like flashy car crash vfx whatever when you watch like all these superhero yeah. um movies also for me it's almost like a, it's almost like the experience that you have when you're on acid <laughs> you know but, yeah it's like colorful and I don't know. It's like being on, you know, acid. I love how you say, like, I love how you say that is the experience you have because it's true. Like when when you're on acid, it's like it's colorful, even though this film is like all black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But relaxed Indonesian government. I didn't, I didn't have it in Indonesia. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Like, are they gonna um, don't jinx it? Because you know, the Singaporean government made this rule where, like, if you're a Singaporean citizen, even mm. though you get you have weed abroad outside of Singapore, you can still be freaking imprisoned for that. Like, that's so fucking stupid. Or what is the fine? Like, imprisoned or fine? Imprisoned, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think imprisoned. Yeah. But like they'll never know whether I'm lying or not, you know. That there's the new, uh, the new bill. They said that they prohibit, uh, prohibit any type of like fake news. But then there's like a lady who demonstrated in front of the how do you say that the parliamentary buildings, and she said like, "But how do you know when someone is lying when something is not based on fact?" And I was like, "Hmm." Yeah, you know, maybe this whole maybe yeah. this whole podcast is a lie. Yeah, you'll never know. <laughs> you never know. Maybe all of these people that we've interviewed are not real. They're just actors <laughs> playing a character. They're ju- they were us doing the voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look how many voices we're able to do. We're such talented actors. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the movie is like, I mean, I get what you're saying. It's 
it's on another level. It's not like any other movie that mm-hmm. I, I had watched so far. I don't know, maybe because it's so alien, but at the same time, so familiar. Yeah. I know the Sensory Ethnography Lab, where they worked on this, um, they come up with like amazing films, like some of the most mind-blowing films that I've seen um, were produced from that lab. But I think this one is different because I feel, because it's Papua, that I have sort of a different connection to it versus watching like Leviathan, for instance, where um, it's, oh my God, it's like out of the world. But um, yeah, I think it's different if you just have a more personal connection to it. Yeah. So should we introduce them? Okay. Veronica Kusumariati is an anthropologist and artist working on the issues of indigenous politics and colonialism in West Papua, where she has conducted extensive fieldwork since 2012. She holds a PhD in anthropology and film studies from Harvard University. Ernst Carell makes electroacoustic music and experimental nonfiction sound works for multi-channel installation and performance, and collaborates with filmmakers and artists in making audiovisual work. Lately, he works around the practice of field recordings and composing with those recordings. Ernst and Veronica co-compose Expedition Content, which premiered at the Berlin International Film Festival and has been screened at Cinéma du Réel at Centre Pompidou Paris, at the Art of the Real, Lincoln Center, New York, and Camden International Film Festival. The New York Times included it in the list of the 10 best movies in 2022, although it came out in 2020. And fun fact, Fox News also included it in the list of the latest antics of the woke left. So they've got fans from both sides of the spectrum. And that means that it's fascinating enough for you to check out. Yeah, so uh, actually I went to film school in Indonesia. So <laughs> uh, like my work at Harvard is continuation of the work, the work that I have done in Indonesia. But I think uh, my research on West Papua is very new, you know, like, for a lot of Indonesian, West Papua is very foreign place. Like, I had never been there before uh, 2013. So it was really new for me, actually. And I was compelled to study this part of the world precisely because it's, it's, it's part of Indonesia, but it's very, it's, you know, it's not discussed about in, in my country, for instance. So it's really... When uh, when I was at Harvard, my advisor told me that oh you should go. I she just like she 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 work on Indonesia. She, my advisor is an American anthropologist working on Indonesia, but she mostly work on North Sumatra, so it's the in the western part. So she told me like maybe you need to go to East Timor or West Papua. <laughs> like. Wait, what's happening in those places? <laughs> so uh, I didn't go to to East Timor at the time because I was uh, it was a new country. So I was thinking like might be difficult in terms of like travel and things like that. So I just said, okay, let's I will go to West Papua. <laughs> uh, so 
I was interested in in the society there. You know, uh, American audience, I think, uh, understand West Papua from a film made in 1961 called Dead Bird. Um, it's a film made by Robert Gunner, who's the founder of, of Harvard uh, Film Study Center. And I was part of that center at the time with Ernst. Uh, so it was kind of like very interesting to see uh, not only about West Papua itself, but also the Harvard Harvard engagement with West Papua. And we happened to come across the recording of Michael Rockefeller. I don't know whether any of you have heard about him, but uh, he's very famous <laughs> for so many reasons. Uh, one is that he's the fourth generation member of the Rockefeller family, the richest family in the U.S. throughout history. <laughs> um, he, like his family basically founded so many institutions in New York. Uh, is Mama. that true that they're, they're still the, the wealthiest family in the U.S.? Like they're the, they're the richest family ever? I think so. Oh, wow. Are they? I think so. Didn't realize that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's old money. It's very smart. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if, if if you compare it to for for instance was the Amazon founder Bezos. and Jeff Bezos. Mm. Oh yeah, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. Yeah, it's that's new, new new bourgeoisie. But it makes sense that I mean that was that money all came from Standard Oil, which was huge, and you know it just got richer over the generation. So maybe if you think of like multi generational families, I mean those. Those other two is yeah new money, but maybe this is the richest old money family or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean speaking about Robert Gardner. So from many of your interviews, uh, Ernst, you said that you first heard about this archival uh, recording of Mark, not Mark. What's his name? Mike. Michael. <laughs> yes, the recording of Michael was from the Roberts assistant. Mm-hmm. And when was that? Like exactly what year? Yeah, so that was just after Robert Gardner died. So he died in 2014. And then in 2015, um, yeah, we were contacted or I was contacted by this assistant working for his estate. And they were finishing up various projects. And one of the projects that was still unfinished was to make short films. And Gardner had been working on this while he was alive. But hadn't quite finished, you know, to make short films using the unused material from that was shot in West Papua that summer of 1961. Mm. And um, they had the idea to make short films kind of along the lines of the uh, what they called film studies, uh, or I make air quotes with my fingers that doesn't show up in the audio, but yeah. they're called film studies that uh, Robert Gardner had been making with John Marshall in the very early days of the Film Study Center in the late 50s and early 60s. And that's a, a different story, but John Marshall and his family had made all of these films in... Um, um, Kalahari. Um, in the Kalahari. In the Kalahari. Thank you. Yeah, I was blanking on it. In the Kalahari. And uh, and speaking of wealth and generational wealth, that whole project was, f was funded because John Marshall's father was one of the founders of Raytheon, which is mm -hmm. one of the, still one of the biggest weapons manufacturers. And they're yeah. selling weapons, I'm sure, to Russia and Israel and everyone um still today so anyway there's all this history of money and 
visual anthropology being wrapped up together somehow with Harvard. What about you, Veronica? When you studied in West Papua, have you heard about the uh, the recordings? Uh, no, I didn't. Inside West Papua itself? Uh, I mean, the film recording, yes. I think because uh, some old people still remember like, the, the making of the film. Uh-huh. Uh, but I oh, think wow. what what people remember is Michael Rockefeller because Michael Rockefeller disappeared in West Papua yeah. and his body has never been recovered, right? Uh, so it's still like a big like myth and big story in in that part of the world. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think it's also... But what's the narrative? The narrative? Yeah, in what West is the... Papua about the... About Mike... About yeah. his disappearance. So... You know, the figure of Michael Rockefeller is very interesting, I think. So he's, he disappeared when he was like 23, 24, so he's very young. And at the time, his family, uh, Rockefeller, I mean Rockefeller family, had also been involved in the uh, prospecting of uh, West Papua natural resources. So I think most Papuan thought that his arrival in West Papua has nothing to do with the business of the family. And hmm. it happened that, that the family actually had shared in, has shared, sorry, still, they has shared in the largest gold mine in the world, which is Freeport Mine in West Papua. Yeah. So there are a lot of conspiracy theories, <laughs> theories about, about disappearance. So one version is that he was eaten by the asthma, who was a headhunting tribe in the southern part of West Papua. Uh, the other version tells that he he was eaten by crocodiles because there are so many crocodiles in that uh, part of the world. And then the third is that he's droning and he's gone. Mm. So it's a lot of a lot of stories, <laughs> a lot of stories. But and I the think the third the third story is the art is the officially accepted one, right? Isn't that the one that the kind of family wanted? Mm-mm. everyone to think that he had drowned yes yeah yeah just a simple simply he had drowned he never made it to shore so it's like a succession story and did you kick out a member of the family <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 actually a lot of a lot of, story, a lot of like, book have been published about that so you guys should check it out <laughs> so the the local west Papuans also believe that maybe part of them believe that he was eaten by the asthmat could be because I thought it was just like a Western's like Western, Western um, narrative. narrative about cannibalism and like remote parts of the world or you know how a lot of people I mean, put it. stories are wild yeah. you know? like you cannot really control like who tell the stories and what kind of stories that are circulated. I think most stories in that part of the world, including by Indonesian settlers, they, uh, that is true that that Michael Rockefeller was eaten. But I think for Pop one is. I think they are. They reject that that fact, especially the Highlanders, uh, the Hubula, precisely because Michael Rockefeller went with this expedition and and lived with the Hubula right for three months, more than three months, and he he was safe. Like nobody ate him, right? So yeah. maybe it has yeah. something to do also with this what you call like the Western fetishism toward you know the cannibals and the others, you know. Uh, but yeah. I think the mystery itself <laughs> is still there, so we cannot really. I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I think he's still there. 
Devin. I think he's still there. <laughs> and and that's why it's like we're curious what the Papuans who are there, like how how they view this case mm-hmm. of disappearance. I'm also putting quote marks. Um, that was a quotes. fourth that was a fourth story that he actually was still alive and lived, you know, lived with the native tribes there, sort of quote unquote. <laughs> From the famous pictures of like the white guy yeah, on a boat. There's a photo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> can I can I go back to the timeline question? So between Ernst, you being approached by the assistant of the the widow of Robert Gardner, and then to you approaching Veronica, and then to you guys deciding like, okay, yes, we're gonna work together. Um, what was the timeline like? And also, how long did it take for you to compose mm-hmm. the, the film? Well, yeah, so I did agree to do the sound for these shorts. And so that was the first the first way I listened through to everything myself was with that in mind. Like, how what what is there in these recordings? And they had a, the assistant also made a kind of spreadsheet that Veronica and I t- took and built on and continued to kind of fill out and comment on and put in translations and all kinds of things, but they had already organized the recordings to a certain extent. So I listened through kind of with an ear to how could I use these to create soundtracks for these short films and was doing that not in a kind of conventional way of trying to like match everything that happened visually with a sound or something like that, but rather like thinking of the recordings as pieces of them, pieces in their own right. And kind of having two tracks of things happening, one image track and one soundtrack sort of happening. And so that's how I approached making those. And I don't remember exactly what the timeline was in terms of when Veronica started listening to the recordings, because certainly we started talking about them very soon after. And So in 2015 or 16 that you guys started? Yeah, I mean, this was, so this went this went on over a few years. Like we were doing it kind of part time, you know, just listening and mm. and f- thinking about it and trying some things out and sharing a Pro Tools timeline and passing it back and forth. And we didn't really work on it full time, so it wasn't like an intensive thing. And we would try play little bits of of things for for people in different settings, you know, sort of sharing it as we went along and thinking through. Um, what kind of piece it might become. I think we did know that it wanted to be an audio piece and an audio only kind of like a sound piece, which is kind of ironic because it ended up becoming a film, but that becoming a film was kind of a last, was kind of a last minute, actually. And why is that? Uh, why is that the last, the, the, on, on the last minute you guys decided that it's going to be a film? Um, well, we, so I think we, always liked the idea of it being a sound piece for the cinema. And we're thinking of like the built-in sound system of the cinema, especially with the left center, right speakers at the front. Some of the early Mm -hmm. experiments using surround, like multi-channel stuff with the rear channels didn't work at all. It seemed like it needed to be more simple, but we wanted to use the front, left, center, right. So it was in relationship to cinema, and especially because of what Veronica mentioned, the film Dead Birds being this famous film. And um, one of the few ways that an American audience, at least, or an international audience even knew about West Papua or, you know, through that film. So it was in relationship to film. But then because it was these um, tapes, 
we were just thinking of it as a sound piece. And then we finally thought, well, maybe we could use the projector after all, if we're going to be in a cinema. And of course, that opened up a lot of possibilities like subtitles and information cards at the beginning and end and a couple other things. So I find it really interesting to read your previous interviews about like the artistic choices that um, you took um, to to put where you put certain things and like which parts you included from like the 36 hours of sound. Um, I'm curious about several things. Um, so number one, why why did you choose a tone and then a blue screen as the the um what do you call it? Like the uh, the note, not not the note, the, um, the alert system. <laughs> the alert system. The, the alert, yeah. the sign for, for that the screen will be used. Like what? Why specifically a tone and, and a blue well, screen? First, it was just the blue screen because with the idea that it's in a cinema, you know, you got a big screen and a blue suddenly turning blue. Even if your eyes are closed, you're going to notice that, you know. And then it ended up, of course, that the first screenings of this were right before the pandemic. And then basically it was only going to be seen online on people's laptops and not on not in the cinema at all for quite a, quite a while. And that's where we had the idea to add the tone because a blue screen, you know, a black screen turning bl blue on your laptop is not a very big deal. You know, it's not going to like wake you up or anything like that. Um, and the tone was <laughs> the why the tone is a um well there there are times when michael rockefeller in his like recordings he said he says tuning fork and he hits a tuning fork you know as a way to mm -hmm. like i guess that, i think the idea is when you play back the tape then you can make sure you've got the tape speed correct because it's a 440 hertz tuning fork and 440 hertz is this kind of pitch that Western orchestras tuned to, you know, it's the, the note A, 440. And so it's this kind of, to me, kind of symbolized the sort of Western categorization system that he was applying to his recordings, the sort of scientific mentality that he was record, applying to this. And um, so he used that same 440 hertz tone there over the blue screen. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a conversation in the recording about the blue color. Oh, yeah. Right, about the blue color. Is it blue? Is it blue? <laughs> Is it green? So we took, we, took the, ah. we took the gesture from the recording itself, actually. <laughs> right. Ah. Wow, I didn't even make that connection. Yeah, at the beginning where Elliot Elisifon, the Life magazine photographer, is doing that photography lesson. And he says, what does he say? Something like, the blue light of dawn. Yeah. And he's yeah. using filters to change the color. Mm -hmm. And that leads into this whole conversation about naturalism, if we could use that word, as he says. Mm -hmm. Not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm realizing that the film is one of those films that I watch and then I have to like rewatch again. And then after reading interviews from you guys, I have to rewatch it again, like with that knowledge um, 
For instance, like there were two things that stood out that I was like really curious about, about how Michael says, cut number one, digging the ground. And then after that, it was just silence and there was no sound actually. And then also the parts where there were like these interns of the lab, the the, the university interns who their voice was also in in the film and like after reading your answers about why you made those artistic choices and like going back to watch the film again, it's like, I, I see it in a different way. And like now knowing about this blue thing, I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't even notice that the first time I watched it. And I'm curious, like as a sound artist, Ernst, if you can talk about other, if you made enhancements with the archival sounds and um, how enhancements or embellishments or these artistic choices that you make fall into documentary or what people think is documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mostly, mostly not. Like mostly we very we did very little to the audio. Like uh, in certain cases, we're boosting it a lot, like actually turning up the gain, turning up the volume of these recordings, which are very low level. And then that allows you to like listen into the noise that's there, the tape, the tape noise. Like, for example, when there's the group of boys playing at war and he says, and I placed the microphone on the hillside so as also to pick up the sound of crickets or the insects, Um, which itself was kind of interesting that he's thinking kind of relationally, like he's he's recording the, the boys playing at war, but he's thinking about it in relationship to the insects which are also happening and trying to record that whole relational scene but anyway that was pretty low level and so like really boosting it to hear the detail in there and yeah we actually had kind of a we made kind of a point of not really manipulating the audio much except for very basic kind of eqing or you know a little bit of multi-band compression just so that it wouldn't blow out you know sometimes um but very very like for example, no noise reduction, um, no, oh, wow. no, like trying to edit out particular parts of the audio spectrum or anything like that. You know, um, is really um, we were really interested in hearing the materiality of the tape itself as it was recorded, and so just sort of we tried to make it more audible. There's sometimes where we would maybe boost the higher frequencies so we'd get better noise. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, not less noise. And of course, all of those other things like the thumps and the, the the sound of the tape starting and stopping, the you know, all those clunks and everything were in there. We didn't add those or kind of do anything to those other than use them as edit points. I'm curious about the the collaboration process with your West Papuan's collaborators. How did that take place? Or were you guys went there uh, to West Papua and, and worked together, or is it through online internet? Uh, actually, the project maybe started around 2015. Uh, so that's when I started my field work. So I brought all the digital files to West Papua, actually. Uh. And I worked with artists there, artists and anthropologists, Nikolaus Lokoval and then Cornelis Sieff. So both are kind of artists, right? So uh, they they have their own artistic practices using uh, hubula, musical tradition and music. 
Um, so it's kind of easy actually to work with them. But the first thing that we did uh, was translating all the conversation uh, from Hubula to Indonesian to Indonesian to English <laughs> to understand what's going on inside. Wow, the from all the 37 hours? Not all of them, maybe around 50 to 60%. So our work hasn't, <laughs> has, has not finished actually. <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, <laughs> so a lot of a lot of the recording are actually music, yeah? uh, like musical expression. So we did a lot of translation for that, um, and then uh, during that work, so it's 2015 to 2017, I think. Uh, we talk a lot with them about what does it mean to listen to this archive. Does it mean to listen to your ancestors uh, speaking? Uh, to these foreigners, to these American foreigners. So it's very interesting just to see how they perceive the archive and see the significance of the archive. Significant in the sense that, oh, this is a very valuable document on the one hand, but on the other is also is a document of pacification, right? A document of violence, uh, especially in the last part of the recording where... Uh, conversation among the expedition member are very charged, like very sexist, especially, and racist. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's hard in that sense because we stage kind of like a, a violent encounters between the archive and the people who were in the archive, actually. So, but it's very interesting process in itself because I think Papuan really wanted to know, like, why? Yeah. Why the Americans were so interested in this? <laughs> right. yeah. mm-hmm. This is the first, first impression. The second, I think, they wanted to, they actually, they wanted to, to have all the recording about their, their communities and translate it into a language that they know. So this is something that, that we haven't done, actually, to translate like, a, like books, film, from the expedition in 1961, two languages that they understand, meaning Malay or Indonesian language. So we work in, in a way that, I don't know, I think we work as a artist slash anthropologist slash people who care about this thing, yeah, I think. <laughs> and um, of course, the, the editing part, the technical part is in our purview. I mean, Ernst and me, but uh, Cornelia, for instance, uh, was involved in making sure that that the materials that uh, that we put in the film were correct in in their cultural terms. As in, so for instance, certain musical type like etai, uh, it's called etai in in the Hubula language can only be sung for a certain occasion or it it could only be sung for certain a certain like event for instance warfare right so i think we 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 are trying to be careful in treating the materials not only from our perspective as foreigners uh say american or indonesian but also according to their world view right according to the Hubula word view that, um, for instance, in the dead bird is as a comparison. In the dead bird, 
um, the film really focuses on the warfare, and mm-hmm. it's really it's really bad for the Hubula because uh, the the Western audiences or you know foreigners perceive that this is a you know like warring tribe, like a community that love to to go war. But I think in 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 their life actually. Uh, they have like so many like complex system, not only warfare but also like agriculture, you know, religious ideas. So we also try to bring, for instance, you know, sound recording from from women, because women are so involved in the agricultural like endeavors in that community. So if you if you compare like that bird with expedition content in that bird, you don't see women, you don't you don't hear them. But in in expedition content, we try to put like women voices, women voices, uh, women work in there. So I think it really does matter. I think when we have our Hubula collaborator on board, because well, we also eat. You know, we don't all we not only go to war. We eat. We plant yeah. sweet potatoes and things like that, right? So I think it's. Mm-hmm. Offer us more complicated pictures of com- of a community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious about the complete contents of the whole 37 hours of the recordings because I think I heard uh, Ernst you mentioned in one of your interviews that uh, one third of the whole thing was similar to the party sequence. So I'm curious, like mm. I think in the the Royal Netherlands uh, studies. Uh, webinar what yeah webinar i think uh i may have misspoke i don't think it's a third of it i think that's it's a couple hours or no it's not even that it's like uh mm. i think it's less than an hour of the party sequence oh, um so i must have misspoke um as veronica said a lot of it is music um and like michael rockefeller was um holding a lot of sessions in his tent as he called them sessions um where he would basically be paying people to come in and either sing or play the pecan, which is like a, a jaw harp. Um, there's a little bit of flute, um, mostly singing. And actually, he, he referred to that party sequence on the in his tape journal as the notes say kind of cryptically, intimations of session number six. Because at that mm. time, he'd just been having these various sessions, number four and five and so on, of people singing. Yeah. And the only notes that he has for that tape in the tape journal are, you know, some nice group singing, he says, mm. talking about the members of the expedition, you know, so it's very, very strange. Mm. Um, and it actually turned out the the Peabody Museum themselves had no idea that was in there, that was included in the archive. Um, Well, nobody had really looked in detail at this archive, I think, before. But they were taken a little bit by surprise. Right. Were there sounds from the 37 hours that you guys wished you could have included in the 78-minute film? Um, Were there parts that you were forced to cut out for length or other things? Yeah, a lot. Um, I mean, I would have loved to have more music. Um, there was a lot of uh, just time hanging out, kind of. And it's, you know, 
I think like that thing that um, one of the things that the it's not the very first thing, but there's the, there's the conversation that happens first, but then the first thing that happens after the conversation is a, a kind of long take or long recording of just kind of general activity. Um, nothing in particular, you know, like we're not really, there's nothing telling you what exactly to be listening for or listening to. It's sort of just a, a time for kind of open listening. And I would have loved to include more of that um much, much more there there's lots of like conversation where people is just kind of bantering conversation between michael and lots of recordings of children uh playing and doing all kinds of things i mean some of that audio i was able to use in the soundtracks for the short films for example one of the films is um an 18 minute long film about collecting salt mm. and all of it was apparently a topic that they found interesting because there's a lot of footage and also a lot of sound recordings about this whole process which is uh something that women do it's all a women's um project of going down to the salt well and collect you know it's a whole intricate process of collecting the salt mm -hmm. yeah things like that veronica what do you what do you think actually michael was sick when he was in Berlin valley and his father like sent a private doctor. <laughs> oh wow. Wow. But there was no recording of it. <laughs> so I wanted to have that recording. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, we don't yeah. have access. We don't have access to some of the archive. I mean we don't know because the archive was maintained by the family until two thousand and five. So mm. we got we we were very fortunate to get that. But yeah. I'm surprised you didn't in include that in the writing, um, <laughs> the part where they sent a private doctor to Papua. Oh, when he was in Asmat in the southern part, they, the family actually sent a private, uh, what is it, catering service? <laughs> because <laughs> catering service. Yeah, because the because the 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 oil company that that belonged to. To his grandfather actually was doing some explore exploration <laughs> in that area. Yeah. So <laughs> well, it's very you can imagine, interesting I guy to say that. Whenever least. he left the <laughs> expedition, I mean he was sort of like treated as a regular guy during the expedition, but then when he left and went on those trips to collect so-called primitive art, yeah. I think he was totally treated like a VIP, you know, and had a whole staff of people working for him and <laughs> Yeah. Mm. No, the expedition itself was funded by the family, so. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, I think you could almost hear his joy, almost, in his interactions with the kids, with mm. the Papan kids, which is also, like, it's very touching. Yeah. Yes. Especially when they, uh, yeah, uh, when they sing sense. together, yeah. Yeah. It's very true. I think it's very true. Mm. Um, when, when you, cause you talked about screening this with the Papuan people, you said that they were, um, thankful that, uh, these are archived because it's something that is getting lost more and more as time goes on. And then after the screening or, you know, as part of the, the screenings with the Papuans, did you have a conversation with them about how, how they view this guy who came to Papua and, and interacted with their ancestors 
but also at the same time, I guess my question is, did you have conversations with the Papuans about who they feel Michael Rockefeller is? So I we screened this film with the uh, Papuan Voices community. So it's a collective of filmmakers based in Jayapura, in the capital city of Papua. Uh, so we screened not only f- uh, not only with the Hubula people, but also people of different ethnic groups. And it was very interesting because first, these young people were so interested in, oh, we can do something like this, you know? So mm-hmm. they are very interested in the technology, actually. It's interested in, the, oh, we can document this. And second, I think they get a sense that, oh, this turned out to be very valuable. So we, actually, we have a lot of things like this. So we should document our culture as well. So to remark from young from young Papuan. I think for people like Cornelius Yep, I think we they they feel at loss. Uh, because a lot of words or and song that that they listen through this recording are no longer sung or spoken. Mm. Uh, so this is a, like loss of language, right? So and it's it adds to their sense of crisis under Indonesia that you know that their cultural expression uh, has no value. They feel that they are discriminated against uh, because of their race. So things like that. So it's I mean it's very complex. I think the reaction. Uh, but on the other hand, they they also. Uh, in regard to Michael Rockefeller, I think there are at least two or three feelings. First is that they are suspicious of of American because of their involvement, especially in the mining company. So I think they have a very strong reservation about American form of capitalism, like why they come to our place and take all the gold, but they don't pro- don't defend us when, you know, Indonesia is suppressing us, you know, so something like that. And mm-hmm. Americans even, like, are involved, right, in the in this very violent, extractive industry. Mm-hmm. So that's the first. But the second, they really, I think they are moved by the fact that Michael Rockefeller was trying very hard, actually, to listen, to be with the children, to be with, to be with women. I think this is something that, uh, that I think is a good thing to do, you know. Uh, even though like you are like very rich uh, guy from the U.S., you are just like us, you know. So th- I think there's an assum- assumption, and it's based on on the egalitarian ethos of the Hubula or the Papua, Papuan people in general, that every everyone should be the same. But then the problem is that he disappeared, and the Western media. I love to reproduce the idea that Papuan eat, eat him. Uh, so I think it's written to your mention about cannibalism. It's like they wanted an investigation of Michael Michael Rockefeller's disappearance and to find out whether whether he's really, you know, eaten by by mm, yeah. the Papuan or by by uh, crocodile. Because I think the the stereotype of cannibalism has been used to suppress their political rights, like the, their their mm-hmm. their uh, wish for self determination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can hear, you know, like from 
more like personal, personal uh, comments about Michael, but also like more like you know political comments about his family or uh, his present in in the in the area in the first place. I'm curious whether people in West Papua they differ they they see because the the project was found uh funded by the Netherlands right do they make separation between the Netherlands and America when they see that because some of the West Papuans they have like the 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 view of Indonesia versus the Netherlands they were they prefer the Netherlands yeah they were West Papuans that pro the Netherlands or they're Papuan that pro Indonesian. So I'm curious whether there's different conceptions of Rockefeller that is atta- detached from the Netherlands. Or is it the same? It's different. I think they see the US as a very powerful nation uh, that can determine the plight of so many people and for the Netherlands I think Papua had a very interesting relationship with the Netherlands first because actually they were very upset mm-hmm. <laughs> that the Netherlands transferred them to Indonesia yeah. mm-hmm. but second I think they have a nostalgia for a better life under the Dutch uh, which might not be true yeah. but you know like during the World Cup like, they supported the Dutch team <laughs> The Dutch team and then the Senegal team. So it's very <laughs> but uh, it's very different, and they they can distinguish between the U.S. and the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the funding came from the Dutch government and from the Rockefellers, and it seems like there was also some but other. They didn't really mention the Rockefeller family, right? No, that wasn't public at the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, Gardner didn't want to make it seem like. It was funded by the. He wanted. I think. I think it was important that it seemed like it was, you know, some kind of. I mean, Gardner could have paid for it himself if he wanted to, out of his own pocket. He's from also a very wealthy family, mm-hmm. but I think it was important for the like legitimacy of the thing, that it look like it's supported by all of these big, you know, institutions like the Netherlands, you know, like the colonial government, like. Um, some other corporate uh, donors, I think, that were also involved. Ernst, um, I'm also curious about the other the reaction of the other group um, because you were approached by the estate of Robert Gardner to to work on the the outtakes of dead birds. Um, I would imagine them hoping that you would you would make something that is not countering <laughs> countering his work. Um, and so what was their response or reaction when they found out that you made this piece? Um, I don't think there was any problem with it. Um, I mean, there. I actually am not sure um, exactly what, well, the main person there is the, is Gardner's widow. And I'm not sh- exactly sure what she made of dead birds. I mean, of, of expedition content. I know she did see it at the Harvard film archive when it was presented there. Um, but I um, haven't spoken to her about it, actually, after that. Mm. So you guys just, like, screened the, the, the film in Jakarta and Jogja, right? Did you guys get any feedbacks from people from Jakarta and Jogja? And how, how, how were the feedback? Did you hear anything, Veronica? 
We haven't heard anything. But in Jakarta, I think they've screened both. I mean, Expedition Content and Dead Bird. Mm. And there was a lot of conversation about Imperial Archive. But yeah, we haven't heard like the tone of the conversation. Um, I think in Indonesia itself, the question of decolonization or like decolonization, archive, are still very much with us because of the current conversation about uh, about Dutch archive, about Indonesia. Uh, but I, yeah, I don't I, I haven't heard anything yet. We should find out. Um, it'd be interesting to know, like, if, what reactions were like. I, f- I do feel like to go back to a little bit to your previous question because we we screened it at the Harvard Film Archive, where in the very same theater where Dead Birds was first screened, you know, in 1963 or whatever. And um, I realized after the after I don't know why I didn't think of it before, but they had uh, asked us to to record a like Q&A that they could just sort of play after the films. And so Veronica and I recorded a Q&A, but later I felt like we missed a real opportunity of not doing a live, even we couldn't be there, but we could have done a live session to actually interact with people and hear their thoughts right after the screening. And I kind of was smacking myself on the forehead because I would have been very curious to hear how people in the audience were responding and we missed that opportunity. Mm, Yeah. That was the screening was actually co-sponsored by the Peabody Museum, so they were all, and the Peabody Museum was in, you know, more or less in favor of the work. They were, I think, they were taken by surprise at the direction it went. Mm. Um, you know, we got the rights to use all the recordings and we did all that properly. But you know, as I said, they didn't know, for example, about the party sequence, and I think they were, yeah, they were they were taken by surprise a little bit and had to sort of adjust to the idea that. This was part of the ongoing work that the museum is actually doing of like shedding some light on what really is going on in their collection. You know, what do they have in there and what have they stolen from other places? (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, also with the political social climate in America, Mm -hmm. what can they do? You know, they can't say no. Right. And they didn't want to say no. They, they, they were, they were supportive, you know, but, um, yeah, they they were supportive, and they are doing other work with uh, repatriation in terms of other things in the archives. Um, what was the most recent thing I read about? Do you know more about this, Veronica? Their human hair in their collection that belonged to Native Americans. What? Yeah, no, it's insane. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. For what? For like genetic. Yeah, like for what? Yeah. <laughs> like why why did they collect human hair? Probably some sort of eugenicist type of thing. I don't know. What do you think, Ron? Do you remember? I think it came from the residential schools. Uh, yeah. the indigenous uh, residential school were used for this, you know, like the biological anthropology mm. things. Um so it's yeah, it's it's a it's a collection that came out of coercion and violence. So I think they deserve to be brought in light. Um, so I think they re- they they decided to return that. They are forced <laughs> to return it. Uh, I don't know about the, this collection on West Papua because I think I don't I don't know what they have. I think we have to find out. But the museum is very supportive so far. Um, mm. Can I ask a filmmaking question? Mm-hmm. Because you guys 
are credited as co-directors, co-editors, and in the end credits of the film, um, it says co-composed by the both of you. Can you talk more about the specific process workflow that you had? Because co-directing and co-editing and co-composing are very difficult things to co-execute in in filmmaking and a lot of people have said that or it's it's like widely known and so like um yeah i was curious if you can talk more about that well i could start i mean the the only credit we use in the credits is composed by we don't we don't use the terms directed and edited but although that does get put on just because those are film you know like maybe imdb or something it might say directed by but that's because it was like yeah, directed by seemed like a strange term to use in this case. Like we're not doing any directing, you know, or anything. We could have just said edited by, but we we chose to say composed by just to, just to indicate the, I guess the relationship to a musical composition, you know, like uh, we composed it that in that sense, put it together. Um. Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess to start with, we we had this pretty. Um, unwieldy Pro Tools session that had, I think, everything on it, um, just separated onto different tracks. And both of us would sort of pull out parts that we liked. Um, I don't remember, I don't remember exactly how we went about it. I mean, I certainly took some stabs at putting things together, and then we'd listen to it together and talk about it and decide. Yeah, I mean, it was all about. So not so much both of it, yes, sitting at the at the computer, but also having conversations about like what are we trying? Well, what what are we trying to do here? What's the arc? What are the different sections going to be? So the the shot to shot transitions, if we want to use film language, were mm -hmm. one thing, you know, that I think would just have to kind of do individually and then see how we liked it. But the kind of larger things, like what kinds of stuff we want to include in the first place and then what's the overall flow of the piece going to be like would be through conversations and trying things out and listening to them by ourselves and with others yeah we have a lot of microsoft excel files <laughs> 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 uh, a lot of yeah excel files showing that you know that we have listened to this recording and we haven't listened to that but i think the driving force was like first like we really love this the sound so it's, uh, we we listen to almost all of them first and then second we also consider the con what do you call content <laughs> <laughs> you know like uh, what kind of conversation that they have or what kind of moment that the the recording has so we use those two consideration and yeah it wasn't very tough, maybe because we we used to work with sound, right? So we have to listen. <laughs> maybe it's a good thing <laughs> that you know that listening demands you don't need to fight over it. Um, but yeah, we kind of certain that you know this is about Michael Rockefeller, but it's also about the Hubula. Uh, is is it? It is about the expedition, but it's also about the real life that people have there. So those two considerations, I think, are always in our mind when deciding, oh, this should be in the film, this should not be in the film. So it's very straightforward, actually. Yeah. 
You said you had feedback sessions with your peers, colleagues at Harvard. How familiar were these people watching and giving feedback with the history and the the current situation of Papua and the relationship with Indonesia and and the Netherlands and the United States? I think most of them were not very familiar, and I think that's precisely the 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 goal. It is like how this material from very far away places, I mean, from the U.S. point of view, and the issue that that has been suppressed, I think, in international politics and uh, international conversation about decolonization, like how people who have zero familiarity with the issue, about the place, about the people, could listen to this. So I think we... We did some presentation at Harvard with student, with Ernst student actually, <laughs> Ernst student. Uh, we also had a group in Film Studies Center where artists of different kinds, you know, uh, filmmakers, contemporary artists, sound artists, wherever, uh, whatever, uh, gather and listen to our work. So we really valued their contrib- uh, their like feedback to the work. We also had some listening session with a student at Penn, mm-hmm. where Ernst did like a fellowship there, I think, in 2019. Mm-hmm. There's a place called the Center for Experimental Ethnography mm-hmm. there. That was, was pretty much finished mm-hmm. for that screening. Like that was, um, the other screenings was still kind of work in progress, but for that Penn screening, I think that was basically, I don't think we made any changes after that. And how was the reaction of your students yeah. at the time of the screening? Well, that's kind of, they're so, because I mentioned before that this was on in progress for a long time, you know, like, and so there were actually two subsequent years that we played still as work in progress to different classes. And this is this class called Sonic Ethnography. So the students were engaged in composing sound pieces uh, that was their project for the class. They were making recordings and then they're composing sound pieces from the recordings. So that we were kind of in the thick of it, you know, in terms of just, they were good listeners, you know, they were really uh, in it. And the main difference between the two years was the first year it was still a sound only piece. And then the second year we had started at using the screen. And it was very interesting, the difference between the two. The first year, as several students in the class reacted very, very negatively um, to the to the very negative stuff that's in the piece, you know, like mm-hmm. the, especially the the party sequence, you know, that kind of comes yeah. later on. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was, and actually very, the, the piece overall, even though it changes a lot when you add the subtitles and so on, all the pieces were very, very similar, like the same the woman washing sweet potatoes, you know, and mm-hmm. con- con- having the conversation with Mike, the the various things but that were there ended up with subtitles, subtitles in the first. No, no subtitles, mm-hmm. just the mm-hmm. sound of the language. So you're just just dealing with the way the the language sounded. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they felt um, that it wasn't properly contextualized by the time they got to the party sequence. They actually felt like these these few students. Um, well, it was there was there was a few issues, and maybe don't get into all of them. But um, for one thing, you know, in an academic context, they felt like 
um, they needed room to deal with that material in a non-academic way, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and they were, so that was one issue. Like they, Mm -hmm. they needed to be able to respond as human beings with, you know, emotion to what they were hearing, which was basically traumatic, you know, in a way this like listening to this violence, um, this, um, and without the subtitles and without the, the, the kind of text at the beginning and end, you know, kind of contextualizing the, the piece they felt like, well, for example, one student thought that somebody could listen to that and, and feel like we are celebrating and really laughing along with the, the people during the party sequence. Like it mm-hmm. was cool what they were saying and doing. And some of the same people then hearing it the next year after we had started, you know, using the screen and with subtitles and text felt like actually that those issues had been resolved. And um, still it's, the violence is there, but they felt, I think they were able to, to hear it a little bit better mm-hmm. and to make, you know, to deal with it in a somehow um, better. But it also became like, for me, it's tricky how to begin a conversation following the end of the screening. You know, when you're with a group of people and, the, and people are experiencing this together um, as an audience, you know, what do you start talking about immediately thereafter? And that was part of the trouble that some of these students had was, I think, after the screening and people's emotions are heightened and maybe the first question was about our editing strategy or some like cold, like procedural kind of, kind of conversation. They're like, well, wait a minute. We were just listening to mm-hmm. this other thing. What are we talking about editing here? We want to, we need to talk about what we just heard, you know? Mm-hmm. So that becomes pretty important. And of course we lose track. We lose not control, but we don't, you know, once it gets out there and it's playing in a theater or something, there's no question of how you're going to help us help, help an audience process it or have a conversation about it afterwards. Sorry. I... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> It's very not important, but I I just saw Ernst posting about expedition content feature on Fox News. Wait, what? Yeah, what's the headline? <laughs> <laughs> what are the odds? I just saw that. Yeah, I just Ernst? saw it just about an hour ago. Apparently, it's crazy. And I'm not even 100 percent sure it's a real screenshot, but <laughs> apparently Hannity put on screen like the woke left has gone too far and putting up the new york times because it was it was kind of featured in the new york times um by this critic manola dargis as one of the top 10 films of 2022 very very unlikely and kind of strange because first of all it's not from 2022 but but anyway there's a screen grab from fox has the woke left gone too far new york times best films (laughs) With a list of the 10 films and there's expedition content on there. <laughs> I was I was trying to search around to find the audio or find the video if it's real. I'm not even sure it's real. Oh my God. <laughs> that's yeah, that's well if it's if it's real, they say there's no such thing as bad publicity, yeah. right? Yeah. That's or, right. Yeah. I mean, I saw one thing where somebody said he had said um one of them is an Iranian film that's not even released yet, and one of them features just a black screen for over sixty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> We've definitely gone too far. So we're <laughs> 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 
It's not real, eh? Is it real or not? I don't know. It looks real, but it, I don't know. I stopped using Twitter, but then I went back and looked on Twitter just to see if if it had been mentioned following the New York Times thing, and then I came across that thing. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Oh wow! So like other people also like saw that and found out about it. It had over two thousand likes. This post on Twitter, yeah. but it's like a viral <laughs> post. You know? I'm like, oh, congratulations! Man. <laughs> right, right after we stopped using Twitter because of Elon Musk and everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, so it was very recent then. Yeah, a couple of days ago. Oh, yeah. oh wow. Articles <laughs> just came out too. It's very funny. Oh my god, yes, please. <laughs> yeah, we'll send you the screenshot. <clears throat> That's funny. I'm curious, Veronica, whether have have you guys played it in an Indonesian community in in America? Like when I was studying in New York, uh, our campus used to play like in collaboration with Indonesian community, we used to play Indonesian movies. Mm. So I'm curious whether you guys have done that, especially for Indonesian communities. No. Actually, yeah, we... Uh, because of the coffee, like, yeah. uh, so many yeah. screening... <laughs> so many screening, like, take place online. Um, and the distributor... Uh, that we work with, like, um, still prioritize, I think, educational, like, market, like, school, campus. So, yeah, we haven't talked ab- about, like, you know, community festival, but I think we love to to work with them if there isn't any opportunity to do. So. We would be totally open to it if any group wanted to screen it. We, we're happy to, to help out. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah. Um, I wanted to say something about the before <laughs> before we were talking about the screenshot. Um, Ernst, you said this this film is something that uh, it's it's like it gives such a visceral reaction. Or um, after you're done watching the film, it's like you need to take time to to like just sit with it and process everything that you've seen and heard. And um, I don't even know if I'm supposed to say this because like sometimes people are like, oh, you're not supposed to like compare or you're not supposed to like whatever. Um, I'm saying this in in a very um, uh, complimentary way um, (laughs) that when I watched this, it reminded me of the feeling that I had after watching this other Indonesian film, it's also quote unquote experimental. Um, And it's like, it's older. I think it came out like in the, I don't even know when it came out. Um, It's called, the English title is called Blind Pigs Who Want to Fly. Mm. Um, And in in both these films, when I watched them, I was just like, after I finished it, I was just like, "I, I need to take many days to process everything. And in both cases also, it's like, I need to watch it again after I've processed things. And then I need to watch it again after I read like interviews with a filmmaker to like actually understand and like connect a lot of the, a lot of the dif- different parts together. Um, I, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> and, and it's, I say it like as a compliment, not as a like, cause I know people are like, oh, I don't, you know, you're not supposed to say certain things, I guess sometimes in the artistic mm-hmm. world. Well, I don't know about that, but I don't know that film. Should I look at it? Should I, should I go see it? Yeah. Um, I think it's good. Veronica was laughing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. The director like attended the film school, <laughs> the same film school with me. <laughs> Edwin. <laughs> uh, so I know him. Um, no, thank you so much for saying that. I think expedition content is maybe it's not very, you know, audience friendly film in the sense that uh, <laughs> I think we we don't make any compromises like in terms of, of uh, you know, putting pictures. I think we, <laughs> we could. Right. We, don't put any pictures. we could like put, you know, like more pictures, and it's very beautiful place, right? The Valley Valley. <laughs> um, but yeah, we just don't want to reproduce like what other representation have done to Papuan people. You know that you have to see the people. But I think the you know the impulse to see is really. It's really up for integration. Like, why you want to see? You know, mm-hmm. uh, why you don't want to listen first? You know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very. I think it's very. In 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 that way, I think. I think we really respect you know, audience, like audience, like history, audience experience. Because I think our film is slightly different in in that way. I mean, it's not unique. I think because so many other films have experimented with sound or with visual or sonic languages that are more radical than us. But I I totally, uh, I mean, we totally understand that uh, it's not an easy film to watch or to listen to. Well, that's why it's kind of funny that it's even considered a f- film. <laughs> like, that's the, f- the funny part to me is that it's in this world of being a film, and therefore you have to talk about why there's not something to look at and so on. Like we wouldn't have those questions if it was like a piece of music or if we talked about it as a concert experience or something like that. Yeah. Because people do, you know, sit and listen to music for over an hour when they go to a concert and they don't. Yeah, of course, they're watching the musicians or something like that. But you don't expect like to be able to look at stuff necessarily. You understand that it's about listening. So that's why it's kind of funny to me that it's like all this like, well, what are we supposed to look at kind of conversation? Hmm. Of course, I come from a more music background where I don't. You know, I don't take that. That's not my assumption that I need to look at something while I'm listening, you know. Um, But yeah, but we ended up, I mean, I also understand why it's considered a film. And it's kind of funny at the same time. It raises more. If you if you had to pick what, how would you name this piece of work? Like what, how to categorize it? Yeah. Well, we would did, we did just call it a sound piece, but then we started using the projector, so we started using this phrase "augmented sound piece." Um, mm. It doesn't really work either, but <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> what? What does it mean? <laughs> augmented. Yeah, just sound plus, like augmented you know? reality. <laughs> yeah, really. No, sound plus something to look at a little bit, not too much, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I I have one one more one more questions for Veronica because I think in the archival documentary interview you mentioned a little bit about reparations. Can you elaborate more of what the West Papuans really demand for this reparation? I think the genuine reparation that they want is the recognition of their political rights. <laughs> that's that's yeah. always that something that they, they want to say. Uh, but specifically from the archive, I think they want 
all materials about their culture to be translated into their language so that they know what is in there, so that they can counter the stories if it's against their own stories. So this is something that that we haven't been able to do. Um, but I think we are aiming to do that, uh, especially because we are still working on the on the music and the musical recording. Um, so it's a lifestyle, lifelong commitment, I guess. Uh, lifelong commitment with the community there. Uh, so it's really, I don't know, it's professional, but I think also personal commitment to work with the people that that your work is built on, I think. I don't know. Like, I think they have very clear idea about what reparation is. I think the Papua. And that's, that's the two things that I convey. But I think there are more, more for instance. Um, they want the archive to be maintained in the US, actually. They don't want it to be in Indonesia. Because otherwise it's, it will be yeah. destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. By not only by bureaucracy or bureaucrat bureaucratic neglect, but also because of the tropical climate, right? right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's yeah. actually very hard to maintain humidity and things like that. Uh, so that's very clear. I think the second part is that we have to continue working with them. So that's that's the thing that they want to do. Yeah. Calix, you want to ask the our last two questions? Um well, <laughs> before I ask that, I did you guys want to share what you're both um individually or together working on uh, right now with new projects? Mm, I have a another archival audio project that I'm again kind of very gradually working on, which is um these if I can say it briefly, let's see. Um, this time it's 1972-73, the recordings, um, rather than 1961. And they're made by a San Francisco tape recordist and uh, an inventor named Dan Dugan, who got a bunch of people together to make recordings all around the presidential election of 1972, which was when Richard Nixon was re-elected. Yeah. And in working on it, it seemed like it was sort of resonant with this night kind of nightmare scenario of Donald Trump being reelected, you know, because Nixon was a similar kind of figure, really. And um, the the heart of these recordings is these very interesting recordings that were made throughout the city in on Inauguration Day of 1973, when there were protests being put on at many parks throughout the city. And so he and several other people, like made these rigs where they mounted microphones on their heads, like stereo microphones, you know, recording on tape and talking to people and recording the sounds of these protests throughout the city. And um, anyway, that's a project that I'm working on now, and maybe it'll be ready by the time of Inauguration Day next uh, presidential election. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. I mean, especially with if Trump's running again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, he is what? definitely running again, right? Oh, please. Oh, he, is, he is running again. Please, no. <laughs> we'll see. He doesn't believe in the Constitution. How can he run? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think Indonesia will have an election Next as well year. in 2024. Yeah. <laughs> no. 
yeah the world the world is like burning i just came back from peru and like the the president um he wants to like dissolve all of congress so everywhere (laughs) in the world it's (laughs) oh it's falling apart veronica are you working on any any projects at the moment yes i have to write a I, ra- I have to write the book, <laughs> the book about this popcorn. So I'm trying to to sit and do that. Uh, but I don't know, maybe 2024 is too soon. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> We're not yet in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> Can you share more about what, what about West Papua that the book will be about? Uh, so, yeah, I'm writing a book about identity formation in West Papua, but why Papua feel themselves as black, uh, as an indigenous. So I think it, it has something to do with the film, but it's, it's broader in the sense that uh, I look at different sides in which Papua articulate their identities, including the mm. Papua Lives Matter mm. movement. Is it like uh, the for is it like the formation of identity of the whole West Papuan or because there are separation between the coastal people and then the 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 people who live Highlanders. in Highlanders. Yeah, Highlanders. It's the whole yeah, it's the whole it's the whole I mean the birth of the notion Papuan mm. Papuanness itself, I think, uh is what I'm interested in. So I'm looking at why these different people call themselves Papuan, and what does it mean to call the oneself Papuan? Uh, right, uh, because in Indonesia, it's ethnic, it's an ethnic identity, but it's it's a actually racial identity. So, I'm interested in the distinction between ethnic and racial identity in that sense, and why, why, for instance, Papuan Lives Matter uh, try to connect with Black Lives Matter movement, why they want to be connected with Pan-Africanist movement in, in Africa or Melanesian movement in the Pacific. So it's kind of global history of Papuan identity. In that wow. Can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it works. <laughs> Um, <laughs> thank you guys for listening <laughs> thank you wait before so okay so our closing question is before we uh, we close we normally ask our closing question um, so for you both um, what is your favorite Papuan food sweet potatoes <laughs> ubi <laughs> Miss Fagan. <laughs> I think my favorite is papeda, which is like fish and sagu, sagu soup. I think it's the best food ever <laughs> in the world. <laughs> Wait, have Ernst, have you been to West Papua? I've never been there, no. Mm. But yeah, I know I about you. sweet potatoes, and I love sweet potatoes. Apparently, they have many, many <laughs> kinds of sweet potatoes, though. So, what I want to know is, what kind do they have? Yeah. Which I guess I could yeah. find out, but I haven't uh, haven't found out yet. <laughs> but I I do think of sweet potatoes as one of one of nature's yeah, perfect foods. <laughs> it yeah. is. 
I think so. I think so too. Here we have <laughs> these sweet potatoes that we call ubi chilambu, the one that when you uh not cook but like almost like barbecue the barbecue them it's almost like honey came out of them i don't know what to call it in english or whether they have you guys have it i don't know do you know veronica in west papua it's very sweet especially yeah in the Berlin valley because it's so fertile it's basically the heaven for veggies and gluten-free mm. guys <laughs> it's very <laughs> do you think it's gonna be like the next uh no, the next like destination for like now with this digital nomad culture and people going to places that are like you know um uh organic farm raised stuff like do you think papua is gonna be yeah. uh, the good thing about the highlight is like they have the best coffee uh, ever mm. so The coffee is, I think, is, is, is really, really good. Um, and they have roasteries there, so they start building that. Uh, it's just the safety that's a bit, <laughs> it's a bit hard. And it's cold. It's cold like, you know, like in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> it's not tropical mm-hmm. Bali. When I watch this, this film, I feel like A lot of Indonesians should watch this, actually, because you can hear their other sound. Because I feel like a lot the joy, not necessarily that deep, like like to like to know them, but just as as simple as like to hear their songs, their traditional songs. Because I feel like we are so we know. I mean, we as a you know like in like Indonesian, we know them through their music. What what is it called? The the famous one? Apuse. Uh, I think I forgot what is it's it called. Apuse? Maybe Apuse. Because I feel like it always came out during the, I don't know, Asian Games or like, like international. And choirs, they usually go international and sing that Papuan song, you know, which is yeah. like, mm. yeah. Yeah, and and I don't know, maybe uh, international people they think like, oh, it's Indonesian. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the song like, oh, I it's mean, their songs, but it's it's not really ours. We don't we don't really understand. I mean, it's yeah, yeah, and it's funny it's that you say that because like, when you say <laughs> it is though, it is. I think so. Like especially if you think about how Papuans consider themselves black, right? Melanesia. Um, and Melanesia. Melanesian, Melanesian, and and they uh, apa, try to connect with like the Pan African um, movement, and um, if you think about like Africa, which is huge and very diverse mm. and different from each other but if you think about like something that's common in all the different parts of Africa is that there's so much like singing and dancing in like everything and I think it's you know from watching this film you see that in Papuan life like singing and I don't know if they dance I think so I do is like We we can't see that in yeah. we couldn't see that in the film, right? But like you can hear it that like 
like singing is such a big part of like their everyday activities. Yeah. Um, so go watch it. This film is very hard to find. Um, but maybe we'll do a screening because guess who's coming back? <laughs> <laughs> I mean you've been you've been saying this for like months and months. <laughs> you mean years? No, but like this time it's for real actually. And like if you want like okay, so like you talked about reparations, right? Yeah. Um I think real reparations for a lot of global south, quote unquote global south people is to give us the freedom to travel, to travel and, and work and live in places where we don't have to like deal with this whole freaking paperwork shit for visa, like for really difficult and expensive visa applications. Like that is the reparation that I want. From who? Because. <laughs> From who? Because there's so many layers behind your like historical background, your family background. So from who? From, from every, every <laughs> from everyone, should I name them all? <laughs> that is, yeah. <laughs> um, but because can because I'm not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ayolah patungan semuanya for um. <laughs> biar hidup gue nggak susah. Like chip in, chip in. I don't know. Split the split the cost. <laughs> Um, but because I'm not getting these reparations, uh, I I'm going back to Indo after more than half my life. Mm, yeah, and that means we have a lot of exciting sugar nutmeg stuff planned yeah. because both of us will be in the same. Are we in the same city? Because it's gonna take like three, four hours. <laughs> I mean, yeah, on the, on a the bad same... day, probably three to four hours. Yeah. Let's say we're in the same province. Is it the same province? Uh, no. Because I'm west in West Jaffa. You're in the capital city. Okay, we're in the same side of the island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, in the meantime, you guys can go ahead and visit our website, thesugarnutmeg.com. Remember, you can contribute essays, you can contribute stories, or you can just to play around. Yeah. So thanks to Veronica and Ernst for spending their early morning and their uh, late evening with us. Somehow we yeah. always end up like it was also our Christmas like year end special episode where two when guests and two guests. it was also in four different cities, right? That time. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. maybe we should make it like a ritual, like end of the year ritual. Every year. Yeah. yeah. And maybe you guys out there also had watched it in Jakarta or Jogja Film Festivals and have feedback, you can just send us an email and we can pass. We can forward it to them. Yeah. yeah. Or if you've seen it online when it premiered at Berlinale yeah. in 2020. Well, I hope everyone's year is winding down nicely and calmly. And if you don't have anything to do, 
Sugar Nutmeg is always here for you to listen to. This is Alexandra. And this is Ruth. And see you next year. Thank you.